Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. Now, last year was a record year for impact investing, with impact startups having raised a record, get this, 39 billion US dollars. After a remarkable performance last year, a further 12.9 billion US dollars has been raised in the first three months of this year alone. Startups tackling climate change and affordable and clean energy raised a total of 47 billion US dollars in funding last year and the first quarter of this year. The war in Ukraine, Russian sanctions, and supply shortages, of course, All of this putting a strain on energy demand and a renewed focus on affordable and clean energy solutions. The need to accelerate the development of affordable and clean energy solutions, of course, has never been more acute. Well, earlier I spoke with Ramanan Raghavendran. He's managing partner of AmAsia, a venture capital investment firm that invests in startups that are looking to make an impact in the ESG space. We talked more about investment opportunities in this area and, of course, that they've put together. It's called AXBC. It aims to help them make a difference through the integration of behavioral change science. We started off, though, by talking about how the pandemic has changed perspectives in the ESG space as a whole. The behaviors around climate and sustainability that have been changed by the pandemic fall into two buckets. One, a set of behaviors people started engaging in because of the pandemic and now have sustained after the pandemic without really giving any thought to whether it was actually good for the planet or not. And the most obvious example in that bucket is working from home. You know, remote work in general is very good for the planet. It reduces emissions. And there's a complicated set of calculations that goes into that because if you stay at home, you do more things at home and so on. But in general, it is very, very good for the planet. When we started working from home during the pandemic, none of us gave a whole lot of thought to, you know, this is reducing emissions and this is going to save the world. It so happens that it is, in fact, really good for the planet that we're working from home and reducing our commutes to work. But Bharti, you and I began doing that in the pandemic, and we didn't sit there saying, gosh, this is good for the climate. We did it because of the pandemic. So this class of behaviors that arose because of the pandemic is continuing, and and these trends will continue. But I think something more fundamental, almost psychological, happened during the pandemic. The misery we all saw around the world, it made me think much more deeply about the legacy I want to leave for my children. A lot of us just began thinking about climate and sustainability to a degree that we did not before the pandemic. And that has aroused a new set of more intentional behaviors. And again, I'll pick an obvious example here. I think we're all a little more intentional about how we, how and what we consume by way of food. We think about vegetarian versus meat. We think about the supply chain that gets us food to our plate. We think about supporting local farmers. There's a whole range of things where I see a dramatic change. But Ramanan, let's not forget the pandemic also fueled environmentally damaging practices. I mean, food delivery services, e-commerce, all that packaging and the data centers needed to power all of this, including remote work and accelerated digital transformation. This, in fact, could be damaging to the environment, right? Bang on. Bang on. There are things that infuriate me. I cannot deny that. And I would love to see many of these things unwound. E-commerce skyrocketed. You're absolutely right. Food delivery skyrocketed. 
But the level of intentionality that we're all now bringing in, you know, Bharti, you and I would not have had a conversation like this 15 years ago or 10 years ago, maybe even five, where we're actually thinking about it. And, you know, I'm moderating how much food delivery I do or use. And on e-commerce, I buy very few new things. You know, I, I, I would like, this is too much detail for your audience, but I'm actually wearing a used pair of jeans. These are things I could not have conceived of several years ago. And yes, environmentally damaging businesses have arisen, but I think we're all much more intentional about how we think about them and how we use them. Some have pointed out that even some solutions to environmental issues appear counterintuitive. For instance, to power the innovations and progress that we're seeing in the ESG space and in the business world in general, we're going to need more and more data centers. And the environmental impact of these data centers in itself has been an issue in several countries. Of course, in some other steps are being taken to make them more energy efficient. However, as investors, we should look at companies' entire value chains, shouldn't we? I mean, that is just a massively insightful and brilliant question. And, you know, the space I, I think is really the poster child for these kinds of issues is crypto, where, as you know, some really convoluted explanations have been provided on how crypto is somehow magically, magically actually good for everybody, good for the planet. And, you know, meanwhile, the energy consumption is, you know, that of many countries. I think we do need to look at the entire value chain is the bottom line. In the case of Amasia's investing companies, they tend to have a very light technology footprint. That's partially because we just do software and it's not enormous amounts of data. You know, the companies where the data centers are truly having a global environmental effect are the usual set of cloud-based companies that have global scale, the metas, the snaps, you know, the Googles of this world. And I think here we've got to look at those companies who, in many cases, own and operate their own data centers. And I think there is a lot of attention being paid at those businesses in making their data centers more efficient. For our companies, Bharti, you know, the, the issue of the environmental footprint of you know, a company, you know, just to pick a specific example, Clarity, which is the world's leading provider of outdoor air quality measurement software and systems. You know, the environmental footprint of this business is negligible. Even with 100,000 of their sensors spread across the world and a reasonably significant data layer. As a, as a general question, I think it's bang on, right? When we look at companies like Tree Dots, which is out of Singapore, or Living Food, which is out of India, which operate in the whole food supply chain, we have to think long and hard about every element of that supply chain and to make sure that we're on the right side of that question. And it is something we spend a lot of time thinking about. But how do you think the large companies, the Googles of the world, can be held accountable in this regard? I mean, there's two things the Googles of this world can do. One we already touched on, which is, you know, the world runs on these companies now. If Gmail went down, that would not be a good thing for the world. We need the data centers. But data centers can be made far more environmentally efficient. And I would I would expect and I would push, and to the extent that I know senior people at Google, I am pushing, I would expect them to make this a priority in the coming years. I think the other thing they can do is something they've all been resisting which is, and you see it from J.P. Morgan to Apple, they all want their teams back in the office. Um, but some of it has to do with this notion of a culture and so on. I think some of it has to do with large corporations thinking that their employees are more productive when they're there in person. 
And I really would love to see these companies move away from that model and embrace the idea of 100% remote as many companies in our portfolio have done. So those are the two things they can do. But Ramanan, with the world opening up and people seemingly wanting to return to their pre-COVID lives, we are seeing many return to the office, people are traveling more. Is there really hope for the gains made during COVID being sustained? I think there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of gloom and doom in climate land, as you may know or may have read or may have seen. I'm actually very optimistic. You know, we're changing an entire global civilization. You know, we have norms, as I said. And, you know, I want to emphasize that norm point. What we think of as work and checking in at 9 a.m. and leaving at 6 p.m. or whenever we do that and being in a building and having happy hour and whatnot, these are all norms. And they're relatively recent norms. And I am pretty optimistic that the gains that we made during the pandemic, we will give some of them back. But I think people really got used to a different kind of norm. And a lot of people really liked it. And so I think these things have to happen organically. You can't force them. But I think there's going to be a lot more working from home, a lot more flexible office structures. I think people are going to be very intentional about their uh, vacation travel. There are some, look, if you want to fly to Paris, you have to fly to Paris. I can't deny that. But I can tell you that I don't, I, I don't seem to have much vacation time in my life, but I live in a beautiful part of the world in the Bay Area, and I could spend the next 20 years going to lovely places that are two hours drive away from here. And that's also, I think, something to think about. So I'm actually very hopeful is the bottom line. One of the challenges of impact investing, we know, is how to measure success beyond profits. With greenwashing being a formidable problem, how do you tackle assessment and measurement issues for your clients? The question about measurement is astute. If you read some of my blog posts, whether on the Amasia blog or my personal blog, I have taken a whack at ESG measurement which I view as very susceptible to broad-scale greenwashing. You know, for us, we took a deep breath and stepped back and really backed away from ESG box checking and have spent the last six months developing our own impact framework. And the reason for this is ESG really focuses on risk mitigation when you get down to it, when you peel the onion. And so large investors raising money from institutional investors want to check all the boxes on both sides of the table. But that's not our interest. We're not here to check boxes, right? We're here to measure impact. The challenge for us is a different one, which is when you have a three-person company that has a PowerPoint and some code, how much impact can you, in fact, measure? And so we've developed what we think is a reasonably nuanced framework. You know, some of it measures intentions, some of it measures what the product actually does, some of it measures additionality. You know, is it is it something new? Is it something that is really more of the same? So we've built our own impact framework. So our impact framework is really designed for us. It is designed for us to articulate what it is our companies are doing and how they're beneficial for the planet. So we feel like we're being honest to our thesis. We're going to have this array of companies. We have this array of companies in our portfolio that if you looked at their financial metrics, I think you would be reasonably impressed. And if you look at their impact metrics, I think you would also be reasonably impressed. You mentioned your framework. 
Let's face it, when it comes to global ESG frameworks and reporting standards, at this stage, there are so many challenges. For one thing, there's no global unifying framework for standards, even though there is some work being done to get there. How is this complicating matters right now for both business owners and investors? The issues around competing ESG frameworks, the issues around counterintuitive conclusions that emerge from some of these frameworks, you know, for example, fossil fuel companies and some frameworks rank very highly on their ESG score. I think it's highly problematic. And it is especially problematic for public equities, where you have larger, much more mature companies with more significant issues around each of the three, E, S, and G, that need to be solved. There is, as you point out, no globally unifying framework. And you know, every year there is a new earth-shattering solution to a global framework, and then it's just one of many that exist. We don't operate in a space where this is a meaningful challenge. Um, at the early stage end of the spectrum, the ESG issues are frankly more straightforward and simpler to deal with. And I think perhaps more important, at our stage of the investment paradigm, we're less focused about on all of the risks associated with ESG and much more focused on, are these companies going to be impactful? Are they going to move the needle within the framework of our investment thesis in making the planet a better place and then helping us all change behavior? At this point, what opportunities lie ahead in this space? What should impact investors look out for? I think the areas that are most interesting to us based on the investments that we're looking at right now, I think very high on the list are so-called circular economy investments. So we're looking at a company, for example, out of Europe that provides a very easy to implement way for companies that have to use packages in their service. You know, and that's a lot of companies use packages. It provides a very easy way for those companies to make those packages reusable. It's actually software-driven business. We're very interested in remote services, especially remote health. And I think that's of high interest in Southeast Asia for us because the impact is doubled and tripled by the fact that you're actually potentially bringing modern healthcare to remote and rural audiences, uh, which is very exciting. Finally, environmental data remains super interesting for us. You know, I mentioned Clarity, which is the air quality management solution. We would love to find the clarity of water and efficient water consumption is going to be a long-term issue for humanity. And we'd love to find companies that really provide the best information about water resources so that everyone from municipalities to businesses can make intelligent decisions. Now, I know that you'll be launching a second cohort of AXBC, a course that actually supports startups in integrating the science of behavior change into their products and offerings. And this is in partnership with UK-based nonprofit Behavior Change, hence the BC in the title. Uh, behavioral change has always been a challenge. Studies generally show that while some people might say they care about the environment, often their statements don't translate into concrete actions. Appealing to their values obviously hasn't worked. So how exactly will this cause help? There's a ton of research on behavior science, very insightful, uh, very data-driven, that has not made its way, surprisingly, into startup companies. What we can improve is connecting all of the behavior science more directly with products. And so we brought a third person into the mix 
That is uh, Natalie Rothfels, who is a very well-known and experienced technology product management coach. And we've completely rejiggered the curriculum between us, Behavior Change, and Natalie. Behavior Change, correctly, has always been viewed as a big challenge. And there's a whole range of issues associated with it. And we can start with some of the common misconceptions. You know, we think people act rationally. They don't. People don't act rationally. We avoid effortful thinking. We're influenced by noise, habit, context, and mental shortcuts. You've got to meet the person around the chosen activity at the moment of the activity. Not the day before, not five minutes before, maybe not even 20 seconds before, but at the moment of that activity. Give us some examples to illustrate how this might apply to the ESG space. If you're looking to change how people react, how a municipality reacts to knowledge about air pollution, you have to build into your product the ability to highlight dramatic changes in air quality in a very narrow and focused way. And you can't leave it to the user to spend three hours trying to make sense out of data. You actually have to package that data and present it in a way that is usable. I'll give you a big company example. I don't know if you've ever done a Google search for a flight. In the United States, you can now see the carbon emissions of that flight. And there's a whole complex discussion around whether that number is accurate and so on, but just set that aside for the moment. You're meeting the customer at the point of purchase and saying, these are five flights. These are the CO2 emissions from each of these flights. And there is no doubt in my mind that someone with even a smidgen of environmental interest is going to pick the flight with the lowest emissions. You know, meet them at that point. That is, in my view, a great example of a behavior change concept that is embedded in technology. And we need a lot more of that in climate and sustainability applications. And that was Ramanan Raghavendran. He's managing partner of AmAsia. If you want behavioral change expertise to truly make a difference through your startup, you might want to find out more about the course AXBC. Just go to axbc.org. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.